Welcome to machine learning. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about modular uh, construction. So one of the companies, Z Modular, out of Texas, they build um, uh, modular components that are used for building uh, hotels, motels, and apartments. And so there's a, a general size, uh, uh, you know, so you could have like an apartment with one, one unit or you could have adjacent units um, connected by a door and then a window. Uh, so, you know, when you, and then you have a balcony. So it's kind of like uh, uh, the same for every, every unit and uh, then they're stacked on each other. But one of the things that uh, I found real interesting is the use of robots in the construction. So what they, they the model was is to build, uh, convert the construction process to a, um, a process a lot like building a car is what they, they said. And, uh, and so you, you look at the, uh, a car it has a certain dimension has uh, you know it has different components that are, are put in, in different uh, time levels in the assembly process and uh, and that that's what uh, they do with the uh, with the modular homes is they, they there's a, a frame which they the robots help weld and then in that frame, then there's a flooring system, uh, walls, insulation, electrical, and at different parts, the robots are doing the CNC work, and um, they're doing the robotic lathing, drilling, um, and drywalling, painting. Uh, and there's also human labor there. There's 150 employees, but I, I found it really interesting in their public presentation of how they've said that they, you know, it's, it's becoming a more popular trend, uh, that they had made, produced over a million square foot of, um, of, uh, of construction. And, uh, and then the, in the presentation, they said that they were applying for double that. So the trend seems to be going that way. I know that I have a friend who they, he's part of the university and he was telling me that uh, they built some student housing and they used uh, this modular uh, construction approach and it was uh, faster it went you know the apartments went up faster I don't know necessarily what the cost levels were but we didn't talk about cost but he said it, it definitely uh, most of the the construction was done off-site and then brought on-site and assembled. And uh, when you think of that model, it's uh, it's fascinating to look then at uh, the different parts of the manufacturing process and and look to see you know how you could incorporate uh, automation to keep your production cycles uh, at a certain certain level. And at some point, there's going to be a, a efficiency trade-off where you can say, you know, we want to replace this particular process with uh, robotic because it's uh, faster. And so, you, you know, um, we've talked about dexterity 
you know, Dex.net uh, 4.0, what it's capable of. And we haven't even talked about the usage of uh, robotic uh, snake arms, where it's uh, it has a gripper at the end, uh, but it can move in three-dimensional space very easily, and it can also be mobile. So now, you know, if you had that capability where it could lift things, move things into place, uh, drill, hammer, uh, drive uh, screws into the wall, um, so forth, then you might be able to have units that could be operational. So you could have, you know, 10 units at a time moving, just almost like a, a robots on an assembly line where they're they're doing welding, painting, and uh, and uh, doing multiple things in concurrency. Uh, you could have something like that for the construction units. Uh, so it, it it is an interesting blend of you know modern high tech you know building and you know uh, taking some of the craftsmanship away and replacing that with the automation. So that's kind of the trade-off. But the, you know, to fight against the trend would be ridiculous because it, it, even though you're going to get a better product or maybe a more fancy, stylish customization, uh, the automation will be very powerful. It's like you know, looking at a, a handcrafted car versus a manufactured car from Toyota. Um, your quality is going to be much better with the Toyota car because it's, uh, you know, use of robots, the welding seams are going to be very accurate, very precise. And that's one of the things that they pointed out is that they like the robots because of the precision of the work. Uh, you know, and so this high level of quality starts to become a factor, not only in, you know, time to assembly, but uh, quality of assembly is good. And, and so, uh, you know, well-built homes that last for hundreds of years, nice finishing materials done very precisely. And, and, you know, and so like the quality of the automobile is now becoming uh, taken into account for uh, the construction modules. Now, this isn't like it has been around, first time it's been around. There's been modular construction for quite some time, uh, even out in Caldwell, there's a place called Kit Construction, and they do a lot of prefabricated homes. And most people don't really like to live in prefabricated homes. We, we, uh, when we were going to move, we were looking at uh, buying a prefabricated home and then buying, you know, a lot and then putting it on there. And I kind of wish I did, but um, we were kind of in a hurry and. Uh, and I looked at that as an option, but one of the problems I had is finding the land, and I wish I would have been a little bit more persistent on finding the land, because I think in the long run, I would have had a, more land, and I would have had a really good house, really nice house, and, uh, and uh, you know, it would have been built on a steel frame, and there would have been a lot of... Uh, uh, advantages that way, you know, but, uh, there's, um, uh, there's, um, 
the possibility, you know, of, of uh, having uh, these prefabricated units. And so when you're talking, you know, of labor shortage to build things, like, you know, because of maybe COVID is, is driving down the availability of, of the labor force, or it's just that the construction industry is really uh, growing rapidly and uh, there's more demand than there is supply, then uh, uh, you have kind of this labor shortage issue. And so the usage of robots in that system there uh, can be supplementing the human labor and, and keeping production levels at a point that's meeting uh, demand. And so that's, uh, that, that's an interesting idea because then you, if your demand increases, you can just increase the square footage of your manufacturing, increase the number of robots, the robots can be programmed, and uh, you can bring production levels up. So it uh, has a scalable model to it. And so if, if this does become popular, then the company can expand and um, continue to uh, increase uh, production op uh, operations. So there's different ways of, of accomplishing work. And, uh, and we're in this era now of automation. And so as I analyze things, you know, I don't try to defend the status quo as much as, you know, looking at what are the forces of change and, you know, what is the general trend? So, yeah, and it's kind of interesting because it takes a lot of data to, to formulate a hypothesis or to decide if, you know, uh, there's an exponential cumulative density function that's occurring or, you know, there's a high probability uh, based on the data that you have that, um, that the data is complete and that you can make, draw inferences from it. So if you look at, uh, as you look at the automation, it's fairly new. It's fairly new. Even though we've had robots around for a long time, AI has not been uh, largely accepted, but maybe in the last uh, 20 years. And it, it has really started to gain lots of momentum uh, as uh, deep learning was making breakthroughs. So George Hinton's uh, uh, Bozeman reinforcement Bozeman machine uh, began to become a reality. It, it looked good. It, it uh, showed that the perceptron could be possible. And so they, um, uh, you know, began to take a look again at neural nets. And now we've got the AI uh, revolution where it's, or transformation, I would say transformation is probably a better way of saying it, where machines now are doing a lot more uh active role in interacting with uh, almost every aspect of our commercial life, you know, from uh, navigation, risk analysis, to uh, navigation flow monitoring, to uh, natural speech processing, the artificial stupidity, to interconnected networks where AI is, um, uh, you know, actively searching for information. You have the active daemon uh, principle where your device is not uh, sitting there, but it's, it's, uh, it's working constantly. It's, uh, you know, gathering information about its environment. Uh, it's learning from interactions with the, the, 
discussions. Probably in a few years, uh, that you know, with AI chips, uh, I could be doing a podcast and the, the AI system could be listening to what I'm saying. And perhaps it could start asking me some questions. And, uh, you know, from the content that it, I've been talking about and help facilitate the discussion. So um, Spotify could could uh, consider that um, also as there because they're analyzing content right now and you know they're 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 doing uh, probably doing uh, uh, language or media to signal processing to text and then from that text they're analyzing context and uh, they're doing sentiment analysis natural language processing uh, parsing out nouns, verbs, uh, adjectives, uh, direct objects, looking at um, clustering of, of words and, and content, finding similar podcasts, and probably making recommendations. If you like this podcast, you might like this other one. If you like this particular content that this person's talking about, you might like this other uh, podcaster who talks about similar content. So they're investing a lot of time and money into uh, understanding data science and the, uh, you know, the content of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the media that's being discussed and utilizing, <clears throat> utilizing that data to, uh, to draw in more, more views. They also seem to be doing something with their algorithm because sometimes uh, I found that when I have certain topics that I'm talking about, I'll have like huge spikes. I'll have like a 600 viewer spike, and then it can drop down as low as five. You know, so it's like if you're not constantly podcasting, Spotify has some way of uh, inhibiting. And that's not to say that people can't find your podcast and listen to you, but. Um, uh, it, it definitely the promotion machine inside Spotify uh, controls your flow rate. So, uh, so it keeps you. They keep uh, wanting more content, and it's driving their producers of content to constantly uh, be putting out. So, you know, they, they might take your a uh, couple of your episodes and say, you know, let's just run with this one. This one's pretty well. Uh, uh, structured and they'll run with it for a little while and it'll produce you know maybe a thousand views and then they'll uh, they'll get tired of that and they'll find some some other podcaster who they might uh, uh, have better content and then they'll drive that uh, drive that podcast and get more views so the content mediators are really control your visibility and your earnings um, so it doesn't seem like I, I imagine if you if you did have some money, you could reinvest it into advertising your podcast, and uh, and that might be a way to uh, if you could get the the right ratios of advertising to your media, uh, that might be a way to also justify your advertising. So these are. Uh, these are interesting times we have because the media, I think the podcasting has become the new internet. Uh, people are listening more to content. I did this uh, analysis uh, from Stack Overflow on, uh, on a study where they were using IoT devices to measure what people did with their time. 
uh, when they were home, how much time they were sleeping, how much time they were uh, playing media, how much time they were, you know, using toiletry uh, activity, their sleeping, media, eating, uh, socializing. And it was amazing how when I ran the analysis um, and then I used a time series, so I uh, was able to do a forward fill, so it kind of smoothed out the, the missing data. But when I was able to do that, I found that uh, that there's an increased trend towards people sleeping less and playing more media, which I found was really interesting because um, media is probably also destroying people's intimacy life and could affect the reproduction of society. So let's say today if our our number of children that you're having is 2.3, then you have population replacement. But if you go below 2.3, then you have problems like you see in Japan where you now have a growing population of aged people, but not uh, not very many new babies. And so in 20 years from now, uh, 60% of Japan's population will be gone. And uh, so that's a huge concern for their society about the focus on the family. Even though Japan focuses on family as a principle, the population growth has not been sustained. And so if media becomes this thing where it now competes for the interest of young people's minds and they're not having families and they're not uh, uh, they're not spending time with family members and they're spending more time with the media, then that's going to be an anti-human uh, technology. And that's why I say that technology can be anti-human is because it replaces humanity, and and that you and you might make this the same argument for uh, automation that is you know going to replace people's jobs or for, form of livelihood and so forth. But it it will it will take away people's jobs. So 85 million people will lose their jobs, and what I'm saying is it's time to start recognizing that that trend is emerging and start to uh, look at the future of what types of careers will exist in the future and and start uh, beginning your cross training into future uh, future technologies you know that may be in learning how to to program AI you may need to learn how to write uh, machine learning classifiers you may need to learn how to do data analytics uh, data analysis, uh, robotics for programming, data engineering, SQL programming, so forth. These these things that will exist in the future that will um, offer companies value. You might need to learn how to uh, write Python code to IoT devices uh, through a Rabbit uh, MQ message server to gather information. These are things that we don't. Uh, readily think about today, but uh, you know, in the future it's going to be more common. Maybe they're, you know, every company will have a RabbitMQ messaging server that's gathering real-time data from its sensors and then being fed into uh, a, 
Hadoop Hive cluster network with uh, PySpark machine learning pipeline uh, analyzing the content of the data uh, looking for anomalies or understanding production cycles. And these are these are uh, all uh, things that uh, uh, will probably exist in the future. That you know you're going to have this huge proliferation of IoT. You're going to have uh, you know uh, this big huge spike in uh, computing, and uh, and the the move is going to be towards real time processing. And that's what I've said before: is this the idea of batch processing too complex, everything is going to be work moving to the microservices, micro functions, and, uh, and lots more uh, programming by people and by machines. And once, once machines start to program, uh, the, the level of automation will, will surge. You'll see a huge surge in, in things that uh, uh, companies that are, are quickly adopting uh, machine generated code and utilizing the functionality that it can provide. It might be in IoT devices that, you know, you, they, they invest millions of dollars into IoT devices for understanding their processes and making real-time decisions. And they're using automate, you know, AI to help in the decision-making processes by analyzing data. And, um, they're finding efficiency improvements, and so this this uh, efficiency improvement uh, translates to a return on investment. And so this faster response uh, is going to be important. It's like um, I think I think it's interesting because um, I went to a Thai restaurant yesterday and with my daughters, and we placed our orders, and I thought it was really clear what everyone wanted, and then when I got my first meal plate back it was wrong and I was thinking well was that because she didn't understand what I asked or was the order communicated incorrectly to the uh, the cooks and uh, led to kind of to think well I wonder if uh, uh, if we had done things through automation that uh you know, I would have selected the item I want from the, the menu, and then that would have fed to the kitchen, and then uh, the plate would have been put on a conveyor belt and would have transmitted uh, uh, through a, a you know a sealed tube. You don't want anything falling on the food, and uh, it would have brought it it out through a conveyor belt, and then uh, up through the table, and then my meal would have arrived, and the the thing would have opened, and I would have taken out my my bill and it would have been exactly what I wanted. Now, um, you know, that was a small mishap. I ended up paying it, you know, and I, I kind of mixed it with my uh, with my daughter's Mossimon sauce, and I, I thought it was great. But uh, but I, I kept thinking about, you know, in a day and age when things have all moved towards automation, companies and restaurants that are, are more artist-like and kind of resisting the automation will always be prone to error. And so when we get to be in a society where we're, we expect such high levels of quality that when we see error, it's, it's, uh, it's mortifying, you know. Could you ever imagine that your catalytic converter 
didn't work or your fuel injector didn't work precise, you know, what if it only worked 99% of the time? Not acceptable, not acceptable. What if your uh, anti-lock brakes only worked 98% of the time? You know, what if your fully self-driving car only had 99% uh, accuracy? What about that 1% accuracy, inaccuracy where it made mistakes? You know, so we're in a, we're in a time where uh, uh, accuracy is very important. We live in a society where, you know, things have to be perfect. And uh, we expect it, you know, and, and that expectation on human performance is very difficult because humans are not perfect, but we, we are able to adapt and correct. And, uh, and we can build systems that can adapt and correct also. Um, you know, as I, I think into the possibility of, you know, the new trend towards uh, environmental, clean, big push for green, and I, and I think, you know, how we could have, we've missed kind of the, our golden opportunity with, when Trump was in office to have promoted nuclear power, uh, getting, uh, you know, more distribution of our energy supplies, like the bringing of the Keystone Pipeline, bringing our oil in from Canada. But, you know, this move towards green is going to push things like uh, LNER, low energy nuclear reactor cars. You know, why have a battery powered car when you can have a nuclear car that'll go 100,000 miles? It's a, and then you, you're, what you're talking about is maybe, you know, uh, a few pounds of nickel and capable of, of uh, powering that vehicle 100,000 miles. So, you know, maybe that, that generator today will cost a half a million dollars to build a car like that. But uh, if you can put it into mass production, get rid of the batteries, put in the uh, uh, low energy nuclear reactor uh, generator in the front part of your engine, um, and then have it run a, a a turbine that would produce uh, electricity. You know, you could uh, at nighttime you could power your house with it, and in the daytime you could drive your car. And you know, we've seen in the past magnetic motors that could do the same thing, uh, where they they put a magnetic motor with a small battery in the back to get it started, and then it was generating enough power that uh, you know it could propel the car forward. You don't see any mass production of it because the the, the automobile industry has been so cl closely regulated that uh, uh, competition into the industry has huge barriers, and so there's a there is a monopoly in the automobile industry. But as uh, but as the innovators start to realize that there are uh, energy is the next big thing that uh, clean energy is going to be mandated by the government, then the innovations will uh, drive those opportunities and, uh, and then you'll see, uh, you'll see some amazing technologies emerge. They already have a nuclear car, so you can't let's say, well, that doesn't exist, that's not possible. They already have it. It works. It's expensive. It's used in an expensive sports car. Uh, it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy, but it exists. So 
the prototype works. It's not an issue of does this technology work. So it works. It's not like browning water that you can burn and no one will use because uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know a concept that uh, people can accept in their minds. You know, so you have this issue now of data versus what's in people's minds, and and uh, you know, like with the statistics we were doing, you know, where uh, there was a claim in the the race in the poll that the the people were uh, the the racers were saying in the outer lanes that they were feeling a strong current and it was slowing down their times, and uh, and uh, this was a poll that was created for. I believe it was in Korean Olympics, and there was a swirl effect that they they felt and they, they they thought, you know, is that statistically significant? And they found that four percent, four percent of the four uh, uh, percent had probability. There's a four percent probability in those outer lanes, lanes one through three, that you would have slower times. Four percent, but in a four percent variation in a highly competitive environment where you have elite swimmers uh, that it was you know it was significant and um, so um, <clears throat> these are things that uh, you know you look at and and uh, and you, you you ask yourself okay so you know did it matter did it change the outcome of the Olympics? Did they have a rematch? No, none of those things happened. So the data was not, was largely ignored. Um, will they be consider this, the design of the pools more carefully in future Olympics uh, based on data? Very difficult to uh, know. So data by itself will not create change. And, th- and that's going to be kind of the huge uh, push for that's why I think that there's be a huge push for complete automation all through the system is because when you have the human bias we can largely ignore the data so you could have a, a engine light on your car going off telling you that your engines about ready to burn up and to stop you can ignore that the car does not shut down and pull over to the side of the road and said you know you're this is an emergency procedure to safeguard your engine You'll just, it'll allow you to burn up your engine. And the same is true with data. We can largely ignore all the signals that are in the data if we're not, uh, if we don't have a fully automated system. And the fully automated system will pay attention to the data and uh, take actions based on data. So, you know, I think that's a kind of an inevitable route. Um, I don't like it when politics is driven by data models. I think that that's a bad way to go. But then you could argue, well, you're you're saying that you think that corporations should be driven by data model in their manufacturing processes, in their strategic uh, analysis, in their, you know, claims of direction and so forth. I would say that if, if they're not looking at their data, they don't understand their company. Uh, maybe you could make the same argument about politicians. If they're not looking at their data, they don't understand their constituents. See, politicians are supposed to represent the interests of their constituents and not just the PACs. 
I think packs are super evil, tell you the truth. Uh, because the reason why I don't like uh, packs is they, they're using money to uh, influence the voter uh, opinion of the politician. He's supposed to be paying attention to his constituents, and then they're using uh, money and power and influence to try to uh, present the interest of certain groups to the politician in a summarized form and convince that politician to vote a certain way. And I think that that uh, uh, takes away from the average citizen's influence on the politician. So if the average citizen doesn't like a certain way the politician's voting, he writes a letter to them and, uh, and then they try to influence the politician to vote a certain way on maybe a key piece of legislation and then if the le legislator votes that way, then it becomes a law. And then by the force of law, then they can, they can get the uh, businesses to do what they want. And, uh, and so uh, PACs in that way, I think you become almost like miniature lobbyists. Um, and they become extension of corporate to corporate influence. So you're... You know, you, you know, you're having one corporation influencing another. So business government should not be in bed with big business because it, it destroys the democratic process, in my opinion. And the democratic or the representative process, which we have in America, should be that the constituents' opinions matter. And that's why we have voting and, and so forth. And when you short-circuit that voting or the representation of the people that then uh, there, there becomes uh, uh, there becomes less democratic or uh, less, less re uh, representative, in my opinion. Well, enough on politics. No one likes to talk religion or politics, but, uh, uh, you know, I, it's just one of those things where uh, I bring that up to emphasize that data models are usually incomplete, they're usually wrong, but some of them are useful. And that's that's all I can say about data models is some of them are useful. Um, you know, we're, there were data models that were driven that said, you know, that the global warming is occurring. You know, I see lots of data that suggests that in the Arctic that the things are warming up, but in the Antarctic, there's more ice than ever. So do you ignore the data that the, the government itself is producing and who is analyzing this huge amounts of data that the government produces publicly and for what purpose you know do media uh, spend you know hire data analysts to go analyze that data before they make uh, run an ad or run a news article do they, they do they fairly represent the data and the answer is probably not. They probably have a general idea. They talk to some experts, and the experts, uh, you know, depending on what camp they're in, are going to summarize the data the way they feel it's in their best interest. And so there is this political sizing of data. And, you know, how is it going to uh, accurately be used uh, so that you get kind of into this espionology? Or what is? What is the data actually telling me? And can you correctly interpret that data? 
judgment. So you could end up having mathematic proofs, and then you have uh, you're going to have to have supporting peer reviews, and then you know then there's the power of change, uh, which you know may not be data driven. So uh, uh, those are some challenges I think that we will face in the future, but. We're, we are seeing an exponential increase in computational power. We're seeing more devices on the edge, lots more communication of data. Uh, and so if you're not, you know, if you're wondering about whether data science will exist in the future, it's, just a, it's, it's going to be the new trend. You know, there's going to be universities will offer degrees in computer engineering, uh, software engineering, but they will also offer degrees in machine learning, artificial intelligence, data engineering, data analysis, and you know, possibly even data forensics. There's going to be new jobs that are created. You know, you're going to need someone to analyze when things go wrong and uh, be able to explain the data model and and what why the data model incorrectly. Uh, a decision and then I don't even know how you could explain explainable AI with something that becomes uh, massive for example you know we, we talk about narrow AI which is singular functions that the AI might do like is this a fraudulent transaction or not binomial binary yes no but then you could have a softmax where it's uh, encoding multiple labels and it's giving you probability it could be one of uh, maybe, you know, let's say a million labels. That you can do a million labels and it's taking in a billion parameters. You know, some gargantuous, huge uh, uh, data set. And, uh, and then it, maybe it has 300 layers on it. So you have, you know, max pooling, you have convolution two networks, you have, uh, you know, dense networks, and, and uh, you know, you're looking for features, and you're efficiently extracting those features, and then they're building, you know, lots of different uh, groupings inside those hidden layers. How do you begin to explain what the hidden layers are discovering, you know? Maybe it's discovering people. Maybe it's discovering edges. Maybe it's discovering skin tones. But I was talking to my wife about the problem of the earthquake predictions, you know, and uh, predicting the when, the time gap between major earthquakes. And I said, you know, they, about every 200 years, we have a major earthquake in America. And it's about that time. I think the 1700s were the last time we had. So it should have somewhere, somewhere around the... You know, 1990s should have been another major, major earthquake, like a, you know, a 9.0 or so. And uh, she said, "Well, I've been hearing about that since uh, I was a kid. You know, that's 50 some years, and I've been listening to them say that there's going to be a big earthquake on the Wasatch. You know, I, I did this uh, thing where I was looking at uh, frequency of big earthquakes in Idaho, and, and Idaho, you know, this is the the country of." lava flow that formed most of uh, Washington, you know, the, the lava flowed out of the uh, super caldera eruptions up in craters of the moon and, and uh, area, and, and uh, 
and originally in the old millions of years ago or whatever, I, I'm not sure the, the time periods, there was a huge lava flow that uh, you know flowed down into Washington and it was like, uh, I think a, a mile high and, and moving at about 50 miles an hour and it flowed out of the earth and, and formed a lot of Washington. Well, you know, if you look at the timing and you say, okay, well, let's just put it into a neural net and see if the neural net can figure out a function for predicting. So, you know, like you could build some sort of function that polynomial function that uh, based on historical time gaps that might possibly represent the next, uh, the next uh, uh, earthquake or volcanic eruption. But she said, well, you know, it's a lot like the stock market. You know, there's so many unpredictables that you can't really know, what, you know, when the stock market is going to crash. Um, well, if you know the power, power equations and then you have a, a certain profile that fits that power equation, then you can predict when the stock market will crash when it fits a certain profile. And uh, so I would say, you know, that, yeah, there's some level of unpredictability to the stock market day-to-day -day trading because you're, you know, you have people buying and selling. But uh, if you know what the profile has to be for a uh, equilibrium to occur, then a stock market prediction crash is possible. But there's all kinds of factors that for earthquakes, you know, uh, there's lots of earthquakes that are going on every month. There's at least uh, one earthquake of 8.0 every month that uh, uh, goes off somewhere in the world. And, uh, you know, we have, what, 26 volcanoes that are erupting right now. So, um, you know, the Earth is in commotion right now. And these are kind of signs of the times. And uh, But it, it's it's an interesting thing when you're looking at data and you're you're just analyzing numbers and you're not necessarily thinking about uh you know how these numbers are affecting the real world uh people people's lives and their livelihoods and so forth but uh you know we're just talking what we think that is happening not necessarily trying to make it happen and until next week or until next time, signing off, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast.